You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Get right into the sermon uh, today. Uh, I've got a clock now that I bought and put up there. So, because I almost went overtime the very first nine o'clock service last week. So I was like, that's not happening again. I'm going to watch this clock, make sure I get these people out in, in good time. So, um, this Wednesday begins the season of Lent. And I've got a, as I, as I have the last couple of years, I have a Lent series that we're going to be going through beginning next weekend. Um, we're going to be doing a series, kind of a classic Lent series, The Seven Sayings from the Cross. Each, each of the six Sundays of Lent, as well as Good Friday, we're going to look at the seven sayings, meditating, reflecting on the seven sayings of Christ during uh, his crucifixion. It's going to be a meaningful series, and we'll finish it up on Good Friday with the final saying from the cross. So that's where we're going for the next few weeks. But today is... Transfiguration Sunday. So I've got a sermon on the transfiguration of Christ. The title of it is The Exodus Way. And um, I really feel like the transfiguration belongs in the top five or six most important, significant events of the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. And if you came up with a list of the top five or six, certainly his birth, his baptism, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. But I, I, I really want to convince you today that transfiguration belongs right alongside of all of those others. It's, it's hugely important. So let's look at Luke's account of the transfiguration. Luke 9, beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, what sayings? Well, we'll come back to that at the end of the sermon, I promise. About eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking about his exodus, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But as they awoke, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Transfiguration Sunday. The transfiguration of Jesus marks the big turning point in the Jesus story as recorded in the Gospels. If you remember, at the very beginning, Jesus is baptized. We looked at that a few weeks ago. He's baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan, and then he publicly launches his ministry. 
And from that point forward, it's kind of like everything's going up. It's like ascending a mountain. Everything's on this upward trajectory. His popularity is skyrocketing. The crowds are multiplying exponentially, coming from miles around every direction. There's a growing sense of joy, momentum, expectation, anticipation about something beautiful that's breaking in the world as Jesus is announcing that this kingdom of God that the prophets have talked about for centuries, that this kingdom of God, this era that God is, is intervening and making things right, that it's already entering into uh, the world right now. It's in your midst. It's among you. It's right in front of your face. So everything's going up, up, up. If there was a musical score, it would be in a major key. And it reaches this crescendo, this big climax on the top of the mountain, actually quite literally on the Mount of Transfiguration. As Jesus is praying, he's transformed and his glory bursts forth and his face shines like the sun. But after the transfiguration, the music changes from a major key to a minor key. The mood changes and everything goes down, down, down as he begins his descent down the mountain. Literally and figuratively, he begins going down. The opposition against him grows. The threats against his life, the conspiracies get more intense, more calculated. Uh, he begins having conversations with his disciples about his death. So everything's going down, 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 all the way down to the cross and to the grave itself until, of course, Easter Sunday. Well, a week before the transfiguration, Jesus has this momentous conversation with his disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Barjona speaks up first, as he always does. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you have received this revelation from my Father in heaven. And, and I'm going to change your name. No longer are you going to be Simon Barjona, but I'm going to call you the Rock, Peter. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then, like a week later, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Simon, who is now Peter, and James and John, and they go up this high mountain. The, the Gospels don't identify the mountain for us, but it's been traditionally associated with Mount Tabor and Galilee. But they go up this high mountain, and they have a time of prayer. It seems to have been an extended time of prayer, at least long enough for Peter, James, and John to fall asleep. And as Jesus is praying, suddenly he's transfigured. The glory of Christ just shines through his human flesh. And he radiates with his indescribable glory and beauty and light. It's actually a prefigurement of what will happen one day to all of God's good creation. Paul writes about that in Romans 8, how presently creation itself is groaning. It's subject to bondage and death, but someday it's going to be liberated into glory. So what happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration will happen to all those who are in Christ and to creation itself, transfigurement. Now, as Jesus is transfigured, something very strange occurs, as if that's not strange enough. But on that holy mountain, there is the arrival of 
Moses and Elijah, these two towering figures from Jewish history centuries earlier. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet. It's been commonly understood that they are representative figures. Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration represent for us the law and the prophets, or what you and I call the Old Testament. So you could say it like this. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the Old Testament shows up. And Peter, representing the church, says, I've got a great idea. Let's build three shrines. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. Jesus, I'm going to put you right in the middle between these two giants of our... He thinks he's paying Jesus a compliment. I'm putting you shoulder to shoulder, Jesus, with Moses and Elijah. Doesn't that make you feel good? You are on my Mount Rushmore with these two greats. And, and, and we're going to build these two tabernacles and, and we'll, like, we'll like have trams that bring people up. They can get out, take pictures. And we'll have those machines that crank out pennies with stamps on them. It's going to be amazing. This is a really, really good idea. And right at that moment, a, a, a cloud zips over them. And the voice of the Father speaks down from the cloud and says, not a good idea. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when James and John and Peter recover from their shock, because evidently they passed out, wouldn't you? <laughs> when they recover, when they come to, they look around, Moses and Elijah are gone, but only Jesus remains. Well, as I was meditating on this story in preparation for Transfiguration Sunday this year, what really got my attention this time was this conversation that Moses and Elijah are having with Jesus because they did have a conversation. Sometimes we overlook that and we just look at the symbolism of their appearance like, okay, the law and the prophets and Jesus. And certainly there's extremely significant symbolism that we need to take note of and there's meaning behind all of that. But it's not just that Moses and Elijah appeared. They did have a conversation with him. And according to Luke, they were speaking about his exodus his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, most English translations translate that Greek word exodus as departure in this story. They were speaking about his departure, and that's a euphemism for his death. They're, they're speaking about his impending crucifixion. But I like to think, I just like to leave it as the word exodus. I mean, first of all, we're all familiar with the word exodus. It's not like we're at a loss for what is this word? This is so foreign to us. No, we know what the word exodus means. Even people who are not Christian or have heard the word exodus before. And it's, of course, the name of the second book of our Bible. Exodus, meaning departure. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, means origin. So the first two books of the Bible are origin and departure. And I just like to leave it as the word exodus. They were speaking about his exodus. Think about it. That Jesus is having a conversation with involving Moses about his exodus. That just gives it a much deeper meaning, don't you think, when you say? Most of you are familiar with the story. Many centuries earlier, Jacob's family is... They, well, they've migrated. They've, they're refugees from Canaan where there's this horrible famine and they've migrated to Egypt where there's plenty of food and they've settled there and things go well for them at first. 
But then with successive generations, Jacob's family multiplies exponentially. It becomes this burgeoning nation of people that we call the Hebrews. And they end up falling out of favor with the present Pharaoh and the people. And so they are basically forced into slavery, conscripted as the cheap labor force now that undergirds the super economy of Egypt. I mean, one of the reasons why Egypt was able to become an empire was they had access. They were able to rely on this kind of cheap labor force to undergird everything that they were doing. And so these ancient Hebrew people, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, God's people, are groaning under the weight of this burden that empire is forced upon them. And it's making their lives miserable. And so God hears their groaning and he raises up a deliverer for them. His name is Moses, which means drawn out. Because of course they were trying to put to death all of the little Hebrew baby boys at the time. But Moses, as a baby, he's drawn out of the Nile River. He was in a basket. One of the servants in Pharaoh's household draws him out of the Nile. And he's taken into the fold and raised in the palace of Pharaoh. And he's come to be known at that time of his life. He's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And Moses is raised as an Egyptian. And he's educated in Egyptian values and Egyptian ideas. But eventually when Moses comes of age, he understands his true identity. And he, he wants to rebel against what he's been handed and and live into his true identity, and he gets things confused in his mind, ends up murdering a guy, and everything kind of falls apart on Moses, and he ends up venturing out into the desert, and he lives in the backside of the desert for the next 40 years of his life. Nothing happens for 40 years, or not much happens for 40 years in the story. But one day, Moses has this mystical encounter with this sort of unfamiliar God named Yahweh. He sees this burning bush and he encounters Yahweh in this burning bush and Yahweh speaks to him and essentially says, I want you to go back to Egypt and liberate my people. And so Moses goes back to the palace of Pharaoh 40 years later and he says, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go. And Pharaoh balks and says, that's not happening. And now there's this big showdown that happens. But it's not a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. It's more of a showdown between Yahweh and the pagan gods of Egypt. And it's no contest at all. Yahweh easily trounces all of those pagan Egyptian gods. And as a result of this, Egypt begins to decline. And the story really climaxes when just before the 10th plague, all of the Hebrew families, all of these Hebrew people, they gather together in their homes and they're given a covenantal meal that would come to be known as Passover and they share together around the table they share unleavened bread why unleavened bread because they had to eat it in a hurry they had to eat it in haste and they share a roasted lamb with the blood of the lamb smeared upon the doorposts of their homes and that very night with a mighty hand, God leads the Hebrews in their exodus, in their departure from Egypt. And when they come upon the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts and they cross over on dry ground to the other side. When they reach the other side, the Red Sea closes in again. 
It's as if they burned all their bridges. There's no turning back now. They have made a definite exodus, a definite departure from Egypt, and now they're headed for a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. Now, God's goal, God's vision for this whole thing about calling Israel out, God's whole vision is that Israel uniquely would be formed and shaped as a truly life-affirming society, that they would become a people who are living in proper worship of the true God and also living in just treatment of one another. That Israel would embody that, that he would form and shape them into a properly worshiping and just society so that all of the pagan nations, the Gentiles around them, would look upon Israel and say, that's how it's done. Look how beautiful, look how amazing. Look at the life that they live, how they worship, how they treat one another. I want to be a part of that. The whole goal was that Israel would be a light to the nations, that the nations would be drawn into a whole new trajectory of human life and and human society. But as you follow the story of Israel, you, you, you plainly see that over and over and over again, they failed to live up to that covenantal identity. And they're They just want to become like the Gentile nations around them, seduced into the practices of idolatry and immorality and injustice. But all throughout Israel's story, even going back to Moses, there are hints, there are glimpses, there are prophetic visions that foretell about the coming of a future deliverer, a future king, an anointed one who's going to be a new Moses and he's going to lead God's people in a true exodus of liberation. There's a coming king. So that when Jesus begins his public ministry, watch this, he goes up a high mountain just like Moses Centuries earlier, went up Mount Sinai, and Moses has this encounter with Yahweh, and he receives the law and gives it to the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus goes up a high mountain, and he calls to himself, how many disciples? Twelve. Twelve disciples. You're thinking of the transfiguration. I'm, I'm earlier than that right now. He calls to himself 12 disciples, reminiscent of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's reconstituting Israel around himself. And up on that mountain, as the new Moses on the new Sinai with the new tribes, he gives them a new law. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for things to be made right, for they're going to be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, the makers of shalom for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to give them the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7. It's the new Moses on the new mountain giving the new law, forming the new people of God, and it's all going to lead to a new exodus. I want you to see how all this connects. Now watch this. On the night before his exodus, on the night before his departure, He calls again the 12 disciples into the upper room and he gives them a new covenantal meal, a new Passover called communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood 
shed for you. And then Jesus goes forth from the inauguration of that new covenantal meal in the upper room. And he goes forth and he overcomes Pharaoh. That is the principalities and the powers of sin and death. He overcomes Pharaoh by the shedding of his own blood as the Lamb of God. So the cross truly is an exodus. But it's an exodus that doesn't just lead us out of something, it also leads us into something. Just like for the ancient Israelites. When they crossed the Red Sea, their exodus, yes, it was an exit from Egypt. It was an exodus from that old identity as an Egyptian slave. It was an exodus from something, but it was also an exodus into something, and that is the the identity of the people of God living in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They, it was an exodus out of something, an exodus into something. So I want to put this statement on the screen. just want you to ponder it for a minute or two. The cross of Christ is the exodus from the world of the principalities and powers arranged around sin and death, all fueled by greed and lust and pride. It's an exodus out of that, an exodus from that, but it's also an exodus into something. It's an exodus into the Easter universe of a new world arranged around love and life, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. It's an exodus from a world that is death-dealing into a world that is life-affirming. To take up our cross and follow Jesus is to be led into an exodus leading into the promised land of abundant life, from bitter herbs to milk and honey. Okay, now, Lent is four days away. It begins this Wednesday, February 14th, Valentine's Day. And it'll culminate ultimately in Easter Sunday, which comes early this year. Easter is March 31st. So Lent is a 40-day season. Now, if you look at the calendar and you count it, you'll come up with 46 days. And the reason why is because we don't count the Sundays during Lent. Sunday is the first day of the week. It's the day of the resurrection. So it doesn't really belong to the season of Lent. So we exclude the Sundays. But other than the Sundays, it's a 40-day Lent is a 40-day spiritual pilgrimage with Jesus to the cross. We're following Jesus. We're entering into the story, reliving his journey towards the cross. We're reliving that path of self-denial together and with Jesus. Maybe you grew up in a denomination or a church where there wasn't really any emphasis placed on Lent. That's how I grew up. I, I had no instruction or teaching on Lent when I was a kid. We just didn't practice Lent. I always was told that's a Catholic thing, which it's not even a Catholic thing. It's across all kinds of denominations. But that's what the Catholics do, so that's not what we do. We don't bother with that. I just, I just didn't understand because no, no, one, no one with me understood what value this season has. Well, Lent is, is given to us by the wisdom of the church over centuries of understanding that there are seasons in which we can accelerate our spiritual growth if we'll do some things about it. Rather than just sit on our hands and treat all time exactly the same and say, gee, someday I hope I grow up in the Lord one day. Well, 
Here we have a season, just like other seasons, we have a season in Lent where we attend to our own spiritual formation, particularly with an emphasis, with an accent upon self-denial. And I'm going to tell you this, in this age of rampant consumerism and greed, having a season that emphasizes self-denial, embracing a season like that, that is medicine for your soul, whether you know it or not. Human flourishing, or in other words, what Jesus called abundant life, it's not the result of greedy acquisition. Now, that's exactly what we've been told our whole lives. That's what we're schooled in. In every commercial, every advertisement you see, the messages we're bombarded with every day of our life relentlessly is you need more, more, more. You don't have enough. There's not enough in the world. You better get yours now. You need more. You need this. You need that. You better keep up with the Joneses because they're going to they're gonna overtake you. More, more, more. And it's a lie. Human flourishing or abundant life, life the way it was meant to be lived, it's not the result of greedy acquisition of more and more and more, but in fact of losing that false life through death and emerging in resurrection to a whole new way of looking at life and a whole new way of being in the world that is in fact true. But listen, death comes first. You don't just get to go from the state where you say, well, here I am. I'm pretty much formed by consumerism and greed, and that's who I am. I'm just a greedy consumer, but now I'm just going to glide into something even better. No, the only doorway that leads to abundant life, resurrection life, is the cross. And you don't get to say, oh yeah, the cross, that's what Jesus did for me. Jesus died on the cross so that I don't have to. Well, you know what Jesus also says? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Follow this way. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm going to go to the cross, and I just want you to stand on the sideline and cheer me on. He says, no, in going to the cross, one of the things that's happening is I'm giving you an example. I'm giving you a model. I'm giving you a path that I want you to follow. To bravely follow Jesus into death leads to an exodus. That's what this is all about. It leads to an exodus from the world of death into the Easter universe of abundant life. So tomorrow, aside from being Transfiguration Sunday, it's another special Sunday called Super Bowl Sunday. And we're going to have our big Super Bowl, Super Bowl party here at the church. I'm looking forward to it. I don't like either team, but I'll have a good time. And even if you don't like football, I mean, most people watch because it's a communal event and maybe you'll enjoy the commercials. But here's the thing. Tomorrow when you're watching those commercials, those famous commercials that so many people love, I want you to be watching tomorrow with this in the back of your mind. And when you think about it, don't come up and tell me about it. Just keep it to yourself. But I just, I want this to be in your mind. I want you to remind yourself that every single one of those commercials, even though they're selling completely different things, they're all saying the same thing. You need more. You need more. You need this in your life. You need this. We live in a culture that is formed and shaped by advertisements created by people who are smarter than us and they know how to form us. They know how to shape us. They know how to renew our minds to their agenda 
to the point where we'll even start repeating their liturgies of more, more, more. I need that. I need that. I need that. And every one of us in this room, we're all affected by it, including, by, including myself. I'm, a, I'm affected by it in ways that aren't even, I'm not even conscious of. Just because we live in this culture, we swim in the sea of consumerism. But the counterintuitive wisdom of Christ says something else. And this will be where I want to close this sermon. I want to go back, look at the very first verse again, verse 28. I told you I'd come back to this. Verse 28. Luke begins the story of the transfiguration this way. Now about eight days after these sayings. What are these sayings? Because that's key. What is he talking about? Well, you remember what comes right before this. It's that conversation around Caesarea Philippi where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, or, or Simon at the time says, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. Jesus says, you've received this revelation from God, changing your name to Peter upon this rock. I will build my church. Gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And by the way, I'm about to go to Jerusalem we'll get, where guess what's going to happen? And they're all thinking, oh, you're, that, you're, gonna, you're going to Jerusalem to become king. When you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be crowned king. And Jesus is like, yeah, by being crucified. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be slapped and spat upon. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be beaten and tortured and whipped. And I'm going to be crucified and buried. But on the third day, I'm going to be raised. And you remember, that's when Peter pulls him aside. And he says, no, Lord, this will never this will never happen to you. And when Peter says this will never happen to you, what he really means is this will never happen to me because he's following Jesus. And so Peter's like, this will never happen to you because I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want to go down that path. Why don't we just go to Jerusalem and kill all the bad guys and become kings? That seems like a good plan. It worked for Pharaoh. But Jesus understands that's the way of more, more, and more that leads to death and ruin and destruction. And he says, I'm going to go and lay down my life, and I'm going to be rejected and condemned, beaten, tortured, crucified, buried. On the third day, I'll be raised. Peter says, no, that'll never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, adversary. You've become a stumbling block to me because you're not thinking from God's perspective. You're thinking like this culture. You're thinking like from a human point of view. And then look at what he says in verse 23. Then he said to them all, verse 23, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves. There's Lent. Let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So don't just think that we can stand on the sidelines and cheer Jesus on as he's carrying his cross and stretching out his arms on the cross. Yay, Jesus, I'm so glad you did that so I don't have to do anything like that. No, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow this path. So let's get practical. Which is, I, I don't like the word practical. It's an ugly word, but I'm just going to use it for a moment. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you aware of something false about yourself that needs to die? And when I say false, what I mean is something that you seem to be, but it's not what you're supposed to be. It's false in the sense that it doesn't really bear the image of God. It doesn't bear the Imago Dei. 
And the good news is it's not even who you truly are. It's, it's a distortion that the world system has pressed upon you. It's not who you really are. What really needs to happen is that you recover your true self. It's, it's a false self. But I want you to ponder that question. Are you aware of something false about you that needs to die? For example, it could be a thought pattern. A pattern of thinking about yourself or a pattern of, of thinking about someone else. You know, I don't know about you. I've got somebody in my mind right now. None of you would know them because they don't live in this state. But I can think of someone right now that I struggle with from afar. And every time I think about that person, I'm tempted to have these fantasies of this person dropped in a lake of fire. <laughs> you know? I just, you know, let's just be honest. Well, you guys are look. some of you are like looking at me concerned. Okay, let me, let me move on. No, but like, you know what I mean? Like we all have people we struggle with. And you, you sometimes form these patterns of thinking that actually dehumanize that person. And you see them as, you really demonize them. So it's a pattern of thinking, or maybe it's just an, a general attitude that you have about a person or a place or a thing, whatever. Or maybe it's some like besetting sin. Maybe it's a crippling addiction or something. I don't know. It could be a thousand different things. Something that needs to die. And what I'm going to invite you to do is, is let's journey with Jesus during Lent and believe that whatever needs to die is going to die so that we can experience resurrection to true, abundant life. Life free from the entanglements of resentment and envy and those things that lead to ruin, lust and pride, greed. Let's believe that that's going to happen this year in a unique way. Seven weeks from today is Easter Sunday. Well, not seven weeks from today, but seven weeks from tomorrow is Easter Sunday. So Lent, it's this time of dying that we're going to begin on Wednesday so we can be ready for the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Jesus doesn't say fight to win in life. Jesus says lose your life and you'll find it. And for the follower of Jesus, death is never the end. Death is the exodus that leads to resurrection life. So where do you need to die during this season of Lent? What, where is crucifixion inviting you? Where is self-denial inviting you in your thinking, in your household, in your relationships, in the way you manage your time or money? Don't overwhelm yourself with a million things, but find, find something in prayer, maybe here, maybe this week as we enter into Lent. And I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to do a work in your life that you'll see that part of you die so that you can be brought into resurrection life, abundant life in that area, amen? Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.